Sometimes the hardest person to tell the truth to is yourself. Sometimes the hardest person to tell the truth to is yourself. If you have a moment of honesty, there are a whole lot of us who have come to a place where we ask the question like this one. How did it get to this? How did it get this far? How did, I, how did I get here? And when we do, generally, you know what? We don't pretend around here, okay? I'm not going to pretend with you. I'm not going to pretend like I'm talking about stuff that's not true for me. And I'm going to hope that you're not going to pretend with me either. Because sometimes the hardest person to tell the truth to is yourself. So if we're not pretending... I'm going to say when that's happened to you. Then you and I have probably done one of a handful of things. We get in the position where it just feels like it has gotten out of control. We got got ourselves into this situation or this condition. And we do one of a few things. We either start bargaining with God. Would you just get me out of here? If you get me out of here, I promise I won't or I will... Fill in the blank. When we get in that position, sometimes what we do is we try to minimize the effect of it. You know, well, maybe it's just, okay, it's not that bad. It's not that far gone. It'll take care of itself. Or sometimes we just resign ourselves to this being our new reality. I have fought this thing and I can't beat it and it's a part of my life. It's, you know what, It's, it's who I am. It's just who I am. We are doing a series, and we're heading into the holidays where people, some of you are going home this week. So it's appropriate that we're calling this series Coming Home, and it has to do with God and an invitation He gives. It's a hard thing to talk about today, but I hope that when we get done, you will feel exhilarated, not depressed. There's an invitation that God gives, a real one. That he calls to people. This is not pretend. This is not religion. This is real life where he gives an invitation and says, you can come home. You're invited to come home. I've got a way where you can find yourself back home. Home representing the way it used to be or the way it could be or the way it's supposed to be. And today we're going to talk about coming home when it feels like you are in too deep. And when we use that phrase, here's... Here's what I mean by that. It means you find yourself with involvements that have become entrenched in your life from which you cannot easily extricate yourself or perhaps you aren't motivated to and that block where you've been or where you could be with God. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to the book of Romans. A powerful little section of the, of the Bibles in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. I would really encourage you to read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 just to continue to plow this up after we talk about it today. And this is, we're going to see that there is good news for those who feel like they are in too deep. God talks about how that can happen 
I'm just going to pick up, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, I'm just going to point out sections, I'm not going to go all the way through it, it's very rich, very deep, but I encourage you to read it on your own, but I'm going to take snapshots with you, take a look at what God has to say, God knows exactly where you live, he knows exactly how this works, he knows how you got where you are, he talks about it some, in Romans 6 verse, let's go look at verse 13, Don't, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but you are under grace. There's this universal search that we have that goes on in every human life. We're given life, and as we, we, we look for that which will enhance the life we've given, that which, which will uh, satisfy us, our cravings, that, that which will stimulate us and exhilarate us, that, that which will give purpose to the life we're carrying around or relief from the pains of it. We're looking, we're looking for a sense of, of belonging. Something that will make us, that life that you've got, feel more full, feel more complete, feel more alive. You want, when you have life, you want to feel alive. And that pursuit it comes from your soul. It's soul-driven. Scott Peck, who is the author of The Road Less Traveled, in a lecture in 1991 called The Sacred Disease, he says this, at, at birth, humans become separated from God. If you're around God's word at all, you know that that's true. And everyone is aware of this separation, but some people are more attuned to it than others. They report feeling an emptiness, a longing. Many refer to it as a hole in their soul. They sense that something is missing, but they don't know what it is. And so at some point in their lives, often quite young, these sensitive souls stumble across something that makes them feel better. Ah, they saw, I found what's been missing. This is the answer. He calls it the source of life. The Bible describes that kind of search. It goes on too. And when the Bible describes it, it says it, it, it's going to be put on the cookies on the bottom shelf for us. It says we look in a couple different general arenas for that aliveness to, to be brought to us. The one arena, the Bible calls it the stuff of the flesh, earthly stuff, stuff of our own making, stuff that is sensual. It, it, it appeals to our senses and, and it's of our own making and our own design. And, we, and, and so the Bible calls it the flesh or the earthly nature. You're going to see it translated in, even in this passage. And then there's the source that is what the Bible calls the spirit. It's the stuff that comes from God. It connects on a different level. It is God-sourced and it's God-oriented. When our pursuits take us. Now we have to interact with stuff of the flesh every day. You have to. You must eat. You must sleep. You have to make a living. There's stuff of the flesh, the earthly stuff we have to do. When it becomes the centerpiece, when it becomes the focus of that which will make us feel alive, the Bible refers to it as sin. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It means the purpose, the heart behind going after it becomes sinful. And that's a big deal because of what it does when that becomes your pursuit. Can I just stop and say, everybody in the room has done that. Everybody. You and I have chased that. We have focused on, we have pursued that, which we feel like is going to make us feel alive, and it's stuff of the earth, and it's stuff of our senses, and it's sin. Yes, you have sinned. 
You did it today. You're sitting a bunch, among a bunch of people who are really, really screwed up about this. We do it in relationships. We do it in substances. We do it in entertainment and, and sound and light waves. We look for stuff that's going to make us feel a certain way. And when the Bible says when we do it for the purpose of filling that hole we've got, that's a problem. It's an artificial filling. And God, and God says it's sin. The reason that's such a big deal is because of the effect it will have on your soul. So you look again at verse 16. And it says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you become a slave to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Galatians 5.17 puts it this way, the sinful nature... Okay, that's that phrase, the flesh stuff. It desires what is contrary to the spirit. See the juxtaposition going on there? And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not know what you want. This happens to us routinely. But here's the part that we don't fully understand. When that becomes a pursuit of our lives, and it's the most natural thing in the world for you and I to do. Do that which feels better, which makes us feel purposeful, that makes us feel whole. Go after it. It, I feel better when I do this. When we do that, not only does the Bible call it sin, that sin has a property to it. The property is that which enslaves. You saw that in verse 16. You become, when you give yourself to it, you become a slave to that. Look down at verse uh, 19. I, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. No insult there. He's just going to, he's going to look, all right? You, you don't get this because you're idiots. Thank you, I'm an idiot. I'm glad, thank you for helping explain this simply to me. It says, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurities of your body, in, uh, to, to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, so that he's looking at the one side here, you're free from the control of righteousness. In other words, there's nothing compelling in you in your life that forces you to do anything but choose that. It'll make sense to you. You're under no compulsion from God or the Spirit stuff. God doesn't treat you like a robot. He doesn't force you to go a certain way. And you're free from that. But by choosing where you are, you've you've become a slave to the sin. Verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Ann Wilson Schaefer, uh, Schaefer is a, an author who wrote When the Society Becomes an Addict. And this is what she says about the, life, the, the world you inhabit. It says, life in the U.S. is so stressful that it is impossible not to become addicted to something. She says we, that we live in a society that not only encourages addiction, but almost demands it. Some addictions, such as workaholism, are actually applauded in our culture. While others, such as nicotine, TV, internet, porn, gambling, sex addiction are simply tolerated. But listen to what she says. Nobody grows up in our country without becoming addicted to something. What have you been addicted to? What are you addicted to? See, initially, it has an effect on us. The effect could be positive. It feels fulfilling. It feels good. It seems hopeful. And then it has this diminishing effect. 
because it's the stuff of the flesh. It can't affect the soul. It can't fulfill that part of you. But it has an intoxicating effect to it and then an addictive effect to it. This, according to how I took a, a look at several studies, here's a basic, this is how it works. Here's, here's the process by which something begins to have control in your life that you never thought would have. The first word that gets used is curiosity. We dabble with something. We experiment with something. Now, a lot of times, we're gonna, a lot of times this has to do with substances or chemicals, but it could be practices. It could be relational kinds of connections. It could be how we spend our time. There's a curiosity about it, so we dabble in it, and we experiment. It's no big deal. Just wanted to try it. And then it becomes a recurrence. Still not a big deal to us. We can manage it. If we're challenged that it's, it, it could be a problem, we are completely denied that's the case. We know what we're doing. The Bible has a word for that, by the way. It says that sin gets what's called a foothold in a person's life. It's recurring, we, so we accommodate it. It's not the center of our lives, but it's a part of our lives, occasionally, now and then. And that recurrence then becomes a level of dependence. We lose a little bit of volition to this thing. We find ourselves making choices around it. We start making it a little bit more part of the regular routine of our lives. It starts to dictate how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energies, how we think about it more. We justify it more. And the Bible has a word for this. It calls it a stronghold. It moves from having a foothold to being a stronghold. It begins to control us. We're under compulsion to it. And then eventually, and finally, the word gets used is domination. Where something that once was just something we dabbled in or something we were curious about becomes the center of our lives. It drains us of our resources. It dictates to us what we do and where we go. And it enslaves us. Then it has the property that the Bible says of destruction. The word that's used for death there doesn't just mean physical death. It means it destroys us. It penetrates and it eats away at us from the inside out. There are a couple different forms that this kind of process happens in our lives. One we've, you've heard about already. It's the word addiction. Addiction sometimes gets translated different ways. I've seen this one. It's a repeated involvement with anything. Despite excessive costs because of craving. Or physical and mental dependence on a particular substance or activity. Or simply this. The inability to stop. There are plenty of categories of, of addictions out there. And uh, the Practical Recovery Services Group, which deals with addictions in our country, has a list of things that they see are the most common di- addictions in our society. There they are. Just, would you just glance at that for a minute? Some of those will make you laugh. Some will make you say, come on. So we go, oh, well, yeah, sure, but that one, I, got, I know that one. And if Ann Wilson Schaaf is right, then on that list, 
pretty much everybody in the room has got one or more. Things that have moved across that process where they've become so much that you just really, you, you say you can stop, but you don't. And it's controlling your schedule and your, and your focus and maybe your money and your priorities. You schedule around it. You always have it handy. You always seem to go back to it. There's some things on the list I don't even know what they are. Sometimes they're put in four categories. Chemical addictions, sexual addictions, recreational addictions, and lifestyle addictions. Here are the stats. 14 million Americans abuse alcohol or are addicted to it, according to Alcoholics Anonymous. 2 million cocaine addicts, which is called a conservative estimate. 1.4 million uh, methamphetamine users. 800,000 hardcore heroin addicts. 15 million Americans with gambling addiction of one form or another. 40 million adults visit pornography sites regularly. 60 million Americans, cigarette smokers. 8 million Americans suffer from eating disorders. 29 million Americans have a shopping addiction. What are you doing this Friday? (laughs) And a third of respondents admitted that they cannot be without their mobile device in their waking moments. Take a look at Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 18. There's a lot in there, but let me, I'm just going to skip down to, to verse 18. Here's a reality about you and I and how we live. I know, Paul the Apostle says, that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh. My sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. See the loss of volition there? It's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? There's the word again. But addiction is not just the only form of control. There are other things that have this. You know what the Bible calls them? The Bible calls it idolatry. You take a good thing, perhaps, but you put it at the center of your pursuits, the center of your life, the focus of what gives you joy and fulfillment. You dictate the rest of your life around it, and that thing becomes elevated to God, small g, in our world. The Bible calls it an idol. That controls us. That becomes sin just as much. It's that which is made most important in your life. What is it in your life that everything else has to get dictated around that thing? I will not do it at 3.30 on Saturday afternoon because something else is at the center of my life then. Sorry, is that too too soon? Too close? 
things that aren't immoral, things that aren't bad, but they have elevated themselves so that they become the center of where we find our fulfillment, our identity, that which makes us feel alive. They're made the Lord. So it might be your work. It might be your children and their involvements and their schedule. It might be fitness. It might be a relationship that you've discovered that is just giving you feelings you haven't felt in a long time, if ever. It may be a hobby, but what happens is it becomes elevated to the place of highest value. The Bible says that not only is that sin, it will destroy you. It will drain the life out of your soul. It will cost you more and more instead of give you more and more. It'll take you away from what you were intended and created to be, which has to draw life first and foremost by a rightful connection with the God who made you and gave you the way to live to its fullest. Are you in too deep with something? Sometimes the hardest person to tell the truth is yourself. But if it's there, it has an effect. It makes us powerless. It's, it makes us hopeless. And it brings destruction. Just to glance again at these passages, look at Romans 6, verse 16 and verse 20 again. We looked at them before. Don't you know, when you offer yourself to something or someone to obey as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you're slaves to that which he calls sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap? Look at chapter uh, 7 again. Verse 14. We know that the law, this is the law of Moses and religion and all that, is spiritual. But I, well, I'm unspiritual. And I'm sold as a slave to sin. And that's why I don't understand what I do. If there's ever a passage that talks about the controlling factors of something other than God that we're trying to get life from, it's those next three verses, which we read earlier, and I'll leave you to read again. It traps us. We get to the place where we say, well, I, I have too much invested in this to just walk away from it. it, it it's, not, it's not that big a deal in my life. I can handle it. I can, I can accommodate it. But eventually... We realize that we've, we've given, it, given it our best shot. Our willpower has met its match. Oh, we have moments where we can set it aside, but it keeps coming back. And some of, some of you, let me just say it straight. Some of you have got things in your life that you've worked and prayed and tried and sworn off and you've walked away from and you thought it was done and it comes back. And it's come back enough times that you've found yourself just saying, there's nothing. I don't know what to do. So what you're doing is you're hiding it. You're embarrassed. You're ashamed. And you feel hopeless. It has the increased separation effect. The Bible uses that word in there that says it produces death. That word death is separation. It separates you from your relationship with with God. It separates you from life fulfillment. It separates you from the 
holy things that God has put in your life, your, your healthy relationships, your p- purpose in life. It creates separation death, and it creates collateral damage, like we saw depicted for us on the stage, that there are other people are affected by it, whether you think they are or not. The damage it comes to a level of your emotional well-being, your relational well-being, your physical and your spiritual well-being. And you look up one day, and I have done this. There's some stuff in my life. You look up one day, you just say, I can't believe it, it ever got to this. How, how did it get this far? How did I get in so deep? I never intended it to. It wasn't supposed to. But that's where you look. Because you know what? Something grew. Something got out of control. Something took control. Until it's not, you know, it feels like it's not you anymore. The guy can't go more than a day or two without looking at the porn. Doesn't feel like you. The person who can't stop having a drink when they say they can. It, that's not how you used to be. The person, the person who just will not stop playing the games. Even when you sacrifice stuff to do it. Sometimes the hardest person to tell the truth is you. Drugfree.org followed a number of people. I just recorded them and asked them to talk about it. I just wonder if you might see yourself in some of this.
Now the three defendants are explaining it was sort of surreal. I got issues up to the best of my understanding. My brother, my twin brother, my sister, my father, my grandfather, my family, my son, my daughter, and people. Why me? Those stories were focused on alcohol and drug addiction. But I, I want to just ask you straight. Whether there's something that has gained control in your life. Something that has become the center of your attention, your energies, maybe your money, your emotional focus. Something of the flesh. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something that you could defend and it would look honorable. But if you speak the truth to yourself, you would have to say to yourself, this has been given a measure of control for where I find my life fulfillment. The toxic effect of that does not diminish. It amplifies. And it leads us to the good news. Here is the news. That the God who makes you and knows you and loves you speaks com with complete knowledge about what that is and says to you, you can come home. There is a power stronger than that power available to you. There is one who can inject himself into your life in a way that can reset immediately the relational brokenness that has led to that. Over and over again, he says it in this passage. Look again at Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self is crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin and the death of Jesus gets tr transposed onto your soul and then the life of Jesus gives you a new life. It's possible for that to happen. Look at verses 17 and 18 again of that. Thanks be to God that though we used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Look at verse 22. 
Now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. Look at chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. After the statement, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The next statement that's given is the answer to that question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what God does. You know what God is best at? He's good at a whole lot of stuff. You know what I absolutely believe he's best at? He is best at taking dead things and making them alive. That process cannot be activated fully apart from his direct contact. But when it is, there is, you've got to hear this. There is no addiction so powerful. There is no relationship so strong. There is no pit so deep. There is no habit so fully embroiled in somebody's life that the God of the universe cannot come in, cannot reach in, and by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, give life give direction, give hope, and give healing to somebody who thinks that they're too far gone. The Bible uses this great little picture. It says in Psalm 40, verse 2, He lifted me. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. You know what that phrase is? That's a cesspool. That's when you dig an outhouse and it's been used for years and it's covered and somebody is in and can't get out. This is what God does. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. There is a means by which he can bring about bondage-breaking power. I wish we had time to go over today, but there are things, they're in this passage. Let me just list them for you. When, when we, there's a repentance that's involved, when we repent fully of it, then we enact guards against the return, and then we replace the thinking behind it. We fall in step with the Holy Spirit in our lives. These are not things you check off. These are lifestyle changes. These are things that God can empower. And then we immerse ourselves with the grace and the love of God. And when you look at that grace, this is what you see. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it's weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That's what God did. The love of God is not just something you sing about at Christmas time. It's not just something you come to church and say. The love of God is something that can penetrate into a soul, that can fill the part that's aching and lost. It can change the direction of life can give cleansing. And when that love is embraced in a person's life, and when we go on his path, that this statement, which gets put on, on plaques, but it needs to be part of our lives, becomes true for us. When you get to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written. For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we're more than overcomers, more than conquerors, through Him who loved us. Because I'm convinced. I'm convinced. And I want to tell you today, I'm convinced that this is true. 
This has been true in my life. It can be true in your life. It, it is true for those who will come into the presence of God. There is something that's true. This statement that neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a wonder of something that God does. And it can happen right here and right now. I'm not telling you that your addiction power will not show up in your life after today. But I'm saying that this can be true. There is what you can call instantaneous relational restoration with your God. You feel like you're too far gone. You feel like that part can't even be looked at, that you're such a failure in it. But you can have an instantaneous reconciliation relationally with God. For those who are in Christ Jesus, in a moment, God says, my love will cover you and nothing will separate you from it. And we can go on a journey together toward wholeness. I, you, you need to know this, that you are sitting around people. Right now, you look down the, down the row, you look in front of you, behind you, you look across the way, and I will guarantee your eyes will rest on somebody who this is not just words on a page for. They've experienced the freeing power in their lives of God coming in and taking something they thought was hopeless and forever and permanent and wresting it out of the grip of slavery, giving them measures of freedom and putting them on a path where they've experienced a wholeness and a fullness that they thought had been sacrificed forever. Look around you, you'll see somebody. That is available to you today. God is calling you home. And where it starts is just for you to tell yourself the truth. In a minute, we're going to sing one more song today. And we told you this last week, if you were here, during the series, we're doing something for the sake of somebody who says, I need to take a step. I, I need help. If you were sitting here today and you would say, I'm not sure, but there's, I got to tell myself the truth. Then we want to invite you. We got somebody who just wants to pray with you. They're not going to do anything other than just pray with you. And go to God and say, we're going to stand together in your presence, God, and we're going to say, this is what we're dealing with. We got a side room we're going to open up right over here. And when, when the song starts and all through the song, and even after the service, if you like for a few minutes, that room will be open. And we want to just invite you. You, you just say, okay, I just, this needs to go somewhere. It's time. I just, I need some, somebody pray for me. Even if you don't know what to pray, we invite you to do that. We're going to start that prayer now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. The music's going to start. And while we sing, I invite you to go over there if you need somebody to pray. Would you do that?